Hey, great to see you. If you're new, here's what we have been doing for the past month and a half. We collected together some topics that were maybe not normally touched on. Uh, We actually asked you guys to give us the topics that you'd like to hear, so we picked 12 of them, and we've been working through them. So we've done marijuana, and uh, we did ISIS, and sexuality, and uh, a woman's place in church. Uh, We did why church. I didn't do that. James did. And then last week, we started pleasure. So pleasure, I I cut into two chunks because uh, it was too big to cover, number one, and I think it works well. So last week, we talked about the philosophy of pleasure from Ecclesiastes, and that's Solomon. So if you weren't here, you're interested, you can find that somewhere. Um, It's floating on the net somewhere. So that was last week. This week, we're going to talk practically about pleasure. And I think this personally. I've been in church a long time. Born in church, I think my first word was Jesus. I mean, that's, I've been in church my whole life. So here's what I think. For a long time, um, believers have been known for what we are not, what we're against for the most part. Like, we don't do these things. So I sat down, I don't know what it was, six, seven years ago, based on conversations I had, and I just wrote out all the things that Christians don't do, right? So I'm going to read the list for you. Here's what a Christian does not do. A Christian doesn't drink caffeine. Oh, someone's like, oh man, I'm going home. A Christian doesn't drink beer. Oh, someone else. (laughs) A Christian doesn't drink wine. We'll get you in one of those, right? A Christian doesn't smoke cigars. A Christian doesn't watch movies. A Christian doesn't have a 105-inch LED big screen TV. (laughs) Definitely. A Christian does not have cable. A Christian doesn't wear lipstick. A Christian doesn't wear makeup. You look like God intended you to. A Christian does not have tattoos. Whoa. A Christian doesn't wear clothing from Abercrombie and Fitch. A Christian doesn't wear clothing that isn't handmade. A Christian does not wear clothing unless it's handmade from camel's hair. John the Baptist style. A Christian does not listen to secular music. A Christian does not send his kids to public school. A Christian doesn't miss church ever. A Christian doesn't miss church ever. A Christian doesn't play with cards. A Christian doesn't gamble. A Christian doesn't play bunko. A Christian, it's the gateway to gambling. I've been told that, seriously. I've never played the game. Doesn't drink, a Christian doesn't drink or chew or go with girls that do. There's the list, okay? With that in mind, we're talking pleasure Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans 14 addresses all these kind of things that people have in their brains and in their thinking. There are some seats right here, Marcus. Right there. Romans 14, I'll read it, then we'll talk. 
Verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. We're going to tiptoe through this pretty quickly, then get some practical stuff. Here's the tiptoe. There are two things you have to know if you're going to rightly understand what Romans 14 is about. The first is it says in verse 1, not to quarrel over opinions. So you have somebody come into the church and they have these opinions on things. Paul's saying, don't quarrel quarrel about them. These are the gray areas, places where you can't find a chapter and verse. And so people will ask, hey, can a Christian fill in the blank? You ever get that question? I get it all the time. People ask me, Matt, can a Christian, and then whatever their blank is, can a Christian dance? My answer, some can, some can't. (laughs) Know your gifting and do not embarrass your family. All right? So there's these questions always, and it's because they're kind of gray. And while Scripture may not have a verse that applies to it, typically society has placed a moral value on that activity. And because society has placed a moral activity on that, a moral value on that activity, then as Christians, we're like, maybe we shouldn't do that because our society says it's bad. So there's this kind of thing that goes back and it becomes opinions, right? It's gray areas. Chapter 14 of Romans is how do you deal with gray areas, right? That Scripture is clear on some things. That's not what it's talking about. The Scripture is clear on sex. Sex is to be reserved for the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible says. There's no gray area on that. We don't th- it's not an opinion. It's black and white. So Romans isn't talking about that stuff. It's talking about opinions, kind of the list that I just read, where you can't find a verse that says, should you smoke a cigar or not? Well, there's no verse on that. So there's all those kind of gray areas. How do we deal with that? So that's the first thing you have to know. The second very important point is this, the weak. We read four times the word weak. Weak Christians, weak believers. Here's what's incredible to me. 
the weak believer in Romans 14 is the one that we probably think is a super saint. They're the ones that aren't doing anything. They have lots of rules. They're rigid in their faith. And yet Romans 14 says they're the weak brother. They're the weak person. The one that abstains, the one that says it has to be done this way, there is no room. Romans 14 says they're missing it. So here's what a weak Christian does. They attach a spiritual value to a gray area. Instead of just letting it be gray, no way, they can't do that. Instead, they attach a spiritual value to it. This is good, this is bad. And Paul gives three examples. Let's look at them. Example number one, verse two. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So some people, they believe this, that by eating lettuce, it will get them closer to God. Now, I always joke with people that say this to me, and I say, if you want to really get close to God, drink a six-pack of Red Bulls a day. You'll be with him in no time. (laughs) Right? So there is this idea that By eating certain foods or not eating certain foods, it makes me more spiritual. But the Bible says this. It's Jesus. It's Matthew 15, 11. And he addresses actually diet. And he says this. It is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not food. It's what are your words? What are you saying to people? That's what defiles you. So there is no spiritual value on food. And I always have to add this because I get the emails. Yes, there is a physical value, a health value to food, all right? Yes, I agree. So if you go home today and you eat a gallon of vanilla lucerne ice cream and a pound of bacon, how are you going to feel? Awesome. Just pretty awesome. Why do you ask? Right? There is a value, no doubt, health-wise. We've got to be smart about that, absolutely. Right? If you want to live a long time, eat kale. There is no other reason to eat it. It's disgusting. <laughs> That's the only reason why you eat it. It's the stuff that flushes out the bacon and ice cream. All right, fine, I'll eat it. So yes, we've got to be smart about our diet. Yes, all right, I get that. But that's not the debate here. The debate is if you eat these, food, it, eat these kind of foods or don't eat these kind of foods, it makes you more spiritual. Paul would say no. Okay. Gray area number two he addresses. The day we worship. It's verse five. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What day you worship on is your prerogative. The problem is when it stops being in your own mind and you start saying to everyone else, you have to worship on this day. That's when it's a problem. And there's a certain denomination in our body, the broader body of Christ, that says, unless you're worshiping on Saturday, you are taking the mark of the beast. Have you ever talked to him about that? Oh, that is so hard. I mean, there are a few things that get me in life. That's one of them. I'm like, oh, Lord, Please take this saint home today. Use me if you want to, for the sake of your kingdom, right? The glory of your name, this cannot go on. So what they are saying is really, if you don't worship on this day, you're out. Where the Bible says, no way. My life is not about a day of worship. My life is about worship, that I do all things to the glory of God. 
1 Corinthians 10.32. It's I look at life very differently. I don't do that thing. But they say, this is the day, and if you're not, you're out. It's a weak Christian. Number three, and it's really from verses 17 all the way down to verse 21, it's about wine. And to summarize it, what Paul says is essentially this. If you want to have a glass of wine with your pasta, go ahead, but don't do it around people that can be really stumbled by that activity. So if you're around somebody that absolutely believes Christians should not drink wine, then you don't do it around him or her. You say, okay, no problem. I get it. I'll make sure not, I'll protect you from your conscience. All right? So that's what it is. So Paul here, weak Christians attach a spiritual value to these gray areas. So here's where we're at in this pleasure series. So we did last week, I call it the weekend Christian. Someone that lives for pleasure. They miss out on five-sevenths of life. Just I just get through the week to party on the weekend. We looked at that last week. That's Solomon. The end is not happy. He's suicidal. He's depressed. He's miserable because we are created for greater than that. It's the tail wagging the dog, right? So that's one side. It's the weekend pleasure Christian. But Romans 14 addresses the other extreme. This is the prohibiting Christian. You can't do anything. And Romans says that believer is actually weak in his Christianity, okay? So the weak Christian, here's what they do. I'll plot the course of what happens with a weak Christian. Number one, they do this. They exchange their liberty in Christ. Do you know that you have liberty in Christ? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, 12a. All things are lawful to me. I'm not under that law anymore. Jesus says, John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You're going to be set free from this stuff. Acts chapter 15 is a big meeting, the first massive meeting of the church, and they're debating one thing. Does a Gentile have to do a bunch of these rules in order to become a Christian? And their answer is, no. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. So you have been given liberty in Jesus Christ. But the weak Christian exchanges their liberty in Christ for a list of can'ts. So really their life becomes about things that they can't do. So that's step one. Step two is this. They begin to look to their list instead of looking to the Lord. Instead of praying and pursuing Jesus and being in a relationship with him and knowing him and getting his heart, it's, I don't really need to pray or look to Jesus. I just look down my list. Am I allowed to do this? Yes or no. That's step two. Step three, they take their list then of can'ts, and they believe that makes them a better Christian than those of us who don't obey their same list. And then number four is this. They then take their God-approved list and they use it as the gauge for measuring spirituality in everyone else. So if I can't do these things, no one else should, and if they are, they're a lesser Christian. So they have a big screen TV. Mine's only 32-inch. I am a better Christian than them, right? They send their kids to public school. I homeschool my kids. I am a better Christian than them. They go to church one time a week. I go every single day. I'm a better Christian than them. They have cable. I just have whatever that antenna is now. I am a better Christian than them. They celebrate Halloween. They are in liege with Lucifer. I'm a better Christian than them. Romans would say the person that does that is not a super saint. They're actually weak 
They're missing it. It's Matthew 16 if you want to read it. So Jesus goes after the Pharisees for doing the list thing and says, you have made empty the worship of God. You don't need to talk to God anymore. You just look to your list. It becomes your God in place of God, okay? Here's why I know this person so well. Because it's in me. This whole thing, it's in me. Maybe it's the church I grew up in. Because the church I grew up in, it was very list-oriented. So we were not allowed to like wear cool clothes. I have a picture of my sister when she's like, I don't know, 11 or so, and she's wearing this dress. And it's all the way down to her wrists, all the way down to her ankles, and she's got a bonnet on. It looks like she put on a Mervyn's curtain. I'm like, what in the world? But that was hip. Like now if you wore that, people would be like, you are hip, man. You're a hipster. That's awesome. Back then it was like, oh my goodness, that is ugly. Right? So we, we, like, we were totally out of the mainstream. We were not allowed to have a TV. Like, I didn't get a TV in my house till I was like 12 or so or 13. And even when we had it, we put it away in a closet so no one could see it. I'm like, oh, let me make sure no one sees this thing. Don't open the closet. Stay away from the closet. Whoo. Man, then we'll spend our sin, right? We didn't celebrate any, ho- any holidays. We didn't celebrate Christmas or Easter or that satanic holiday of Thanksgiving. None of it. Like, I remember it when I was, I don't know, I think it was about five, six, seven years ago, we had this Christmas tree in our office, and I went early in the morning. It was about six in the morning, and I get in there, and then on this Christmas tree was this ornament that had taped on it this piece of paper, and it had Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. If you know what I'm talking about, it, it seems like it's a Christmas tree. Like, look out, don't have a Christmas tree. And then underneath it was like, this thing is a satanic, idolatrous, uh, it should never be in the house of God. What is this doing in here? And I remember I took that note, and I'm like, oh no, they found me run. So maybe it's part of that. Maybe it's just me, my personality, because I admire the Pharisee in people. I admire it. So the Pharisees back in Jesus' day, they did this thing where they took this box and they put the Bible in it, and they would take that box and they'd put it on their head, and they would strap it to their head. There's this big box, and they'd walk around with it on their head. Didn't read it, didn't necessarily obey it, but man, they had it on their head. And I'll see someone with their Bible walking around with it, I'll be like, yeah, that's a good believer right there. Got his Bible. Doesn't mean he reads it or obeys it or is someone that's loving or kind. None of that. He's got his Bible. Good Christian. The Pharisees, their name actually means the separate ones because they separate themselves from society. And I can admire that. I had to repent of this one time because like, it, there's this thing in me. So I was having this conversation with these two guys and one of the guys asked me this question. He said, hey, Matt, have you watched this TV show? And I replied, no, I haven't seen it. And then I had to add, I don't watch very much TV. <sighs> Good Christian. And so he left me and he looked up at the other dude and goes, hey, have you watched this TV show? And the guy said, no, I don't even own a TV. I was like, oh, oh, I'm killing my TV. I want that question again. No, I don't even have a TV. Yeah, right? There's that in me. I got to be very careful of it. All right? So there are these two dangers. The dangers are way over here with the Solomon, the, the, where pleasure becomes your master, and then way over here where it's a, all about prohibition that makes you a weak Christian. So where we're supposed to be, I think we're supposed to be somewhere in the middle where there's balance. Well, how do you get that balance? 
let me give you, and they're just three principles, that the, that's all they are. I'm not going to give you the list of you can and can't do this because I'm taking away your rightful pursuit of Jesus and learning for yourself. But here are three principles that helps me to kind of make decisions about what I do with my time and enjoyment, all right? So flip forward to the next book in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 6. Very practical verse here. All things are lawful for me. The old covenant, I'm not under that anymore. All the rules, all the regulations, I'm not under that anymore. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Okay, we have been set free in Jesus. God has given to us fullness of life. You can read, I love it. It's David's testimony when he's dying. It's in 1 Samuel 23. And he says this, God has given me all my desires. When I look back on my life, God has been so good to me. All right? So we have that. All things are lawful to us. But you got to be careful. So Paul makes two qualifying remarks that I think are really key. The first one is this. Number one, he says, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. The Greek is beneficial, or you could say goal-oriented. Number one, when you talk about freedom and what you can do, you have to ask yourself, is this getting me to my goal? Is this getting me to where I want to be? Is this moving me forward? I'll give you the example from my life. When I was 18, just about ready to graduate from from high school, and I was headed up to Oregon State as a mechanical engineer, a group of my buddies, six of them, decided they were going to go to Bend, work at Mount Bachelor, and go snowboarding every single day. And they invited me along. So I was faced with a dilemma right there. That sounds really fun. That sounds really cool. But I'm kind of committed to this thing over here, going to school. So I had a choice to make. Do I want to either become a mechanical engineer or do I want to go snowboarding in the 1996 Olympics? What do I want to do? I've got to figure that out. And I knew my goal was, okay, I got to say no to a freedom over here because I got a long-term goal that says, no, I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to go to school. So there's decisions like that all the time. Like I have, in my life, boiled things down to some pretty simple goals. Like I want my marriage to charity to be brilliant. I want my kids to grow up to love Jesus the way that you're supposed to love him because it's brilliant. And I know I got to work for that. So I kind of have this idealized vision out there in 40 years when I'm 84 and Charity and I just love each other and we love being with each other and we're sitting on the front porch of some house sipping tea, yelling at the traffic as it goes by. That's my goal. And I got to work for that goal. I got to make sure I'm doing things today that are helpful, beneficial for that goal. I want my daughters to walk down the aisle with a boy at the very minimum that I don't want to kill. Right? It's getting tougher. And so I, got, I know right now the way that I treat them is real important because they're going to look for somebody that mirrors a lot of my qualities. And if I'm not kind and gracious and forgiving in those things, look out. So I got to be very careful. And my goal is out there. So I got to look at how I live my life. Right? I have this goal to 
have little grandkids and then invite them over to our house and then to spoil them rotten. Like when they disobey me, just say, oh, that's so cute. Isn't that cute? He said no to me. How cute is that? I love that. And then just feed them like ice cream with hot fudge and nerds so they just get strung out on sugar and then send them home. Revenge, okay? You did this to me for 18 years. Here, sample it, right? I know that if I don't live my life in a certain manner today, that goal is never going to come to pass. I have to be careful, goal-oriented with my freedom. Lord, am I approaching those things? Am I headed for those things? It is a great thing, a great activity for married couples to just sit and talk. Where do we want to be in five years? Where do we think Jesus has us headed? And if that's where we're headed, what are we doing today to start taking steps to go that direction? Because you do not fall into your goals. You move through them. So yes, you have freedom, but make sure it's goal-oriented, number one. And I'll tell you, the biggest robber of pleasure I have found in a believer's life is regret. I don't know if there's a bigger one. I have sat with dads, I've sat with moms, I've sat with kids who have just riddled their life with bad decisions and they are so regretful right now. I wish I hadn't. Why did I do that? Oh, they're tore up by it. Make sure that your freedom is goal-oriented, number one. Number two, Paul says this, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Number two principle, you need to be guarded. Paul here says the believer can be dominated by something. So Paul, author of the Bible, filled with the Spirit, empowered dude, still says, look out. I look at how I live my life and I say no to certain things because I don't want to be eventually dominated and enslaved by them. That's wisdom. I'll give you some examples. Alcohol. You have freedom there. I cannot find the verse. I've asked people, show me the verse that prohibits a believer from having a glass of wine with their pasta. I can't find it. Now, getting drunk, yes, no doubt about it. Being outside of your sober mind, yes. But having a glass of wine, I don't see it. Okay, so you have that freedom. But some people that have exercised that freedom, guess what happens to them? They're enslaved by it. They become alcoholics. It's a bummer. And I've had the kids say, no, it's not so bad, man. It's fun. I'm like, really? It's fun? Waking up in the back of a truck halfway to Mexico? The brand new tattoo on your back, you don't even know where it came from? Covered in puke, missing your wallet? That's fun? I don't think so, bro. You're being dominated by that thing. So you got to take care. You got to know who you are. Even know your past history. I know my past history. Dad alcoholic, brother alcoholic, sister alcoholic. Aunt on the other side, alcoholic. Just, I know my family history, so I say, no, that's not for me. I do not want to be dominated by that thing, and I see it in my family. So for me, I say no, based on who I am. Another one, entertainment. And entertainment is dominating people now. My daughters, it's amazing to me. They just have iPods. But it's like they, they can't, they'll sit down their iPod. Within seven seconds, they're back in their hand. Like, I thought you just set that thing down. Yeah, but just in case somebody Snapchatted me. Like, it's been seven seconds. Really? It's amazing to me. When they're doing that, I call them idiots. I probably shouldn't. I should repent of that, but I do. Like, why are you doing that? Look out. 
To me, there, there is a danger in that because the margins of life are now being squeezed out and there is no longer time to really sit and meditate and hear from God. We don't have those margins anymore. It's now just tuned into something. So I wonder how many of us are missing out on God speaking to us because we're so plugged in. It's why personally, I just got rid of my cell phone because I'm the worst. I was dominated by that thing. Here's what finally got me. I had it in my pocket. I started getting these phantom vibrations. Have you got those? Where you put your phone on silent and you think, it, you think it's actually vibrating, like someone is calling you or texting you. You're like, oh, somebody loves me. And you pull it out. No, no it's phantom. Like, I'm like, what in the world? That is weird. Like my own brain is playing tricks on me. Somebody loves you. Not. Ha ha. I'm like, what? I'm done with this thing. Get that thing away from me. It's weird. I don't know. Got to look out. Money. Nothing wrong with money. Can money dominate people? Oh, yeah. The Bible warns the love of money, not just money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there are dads that they use a good thing called providing for their family, but they become workaholics. I got to get my kids all this stuff. Mm, Careful. Careful. What's your goal? Kids with stuff or relationships? Because I've talked to a lot of young men and I have yet to have the young man say this to me. You know what? I have such bitterness and anger towards my dad because when I was seven, he did not buy me a G.I. Joe action figure with the Kung Fu grip. Just tears me up every day. Never heard it. But I can't count how many young men have said, my dad was just never there for me. His job was more important than me. His work was more important to me. He never spent time with me. Oh, I can... There's so many rich kids that are all busted up because their dad was never around for them. Be so careful. That's what Paul is saying. Guard it. Don't be dominated by it. These things, all these things, they can serve you, but they are terrible masters. When they become their, your, your master, they ruin your life. That's what he's saying. Guard that thing. Don't be dominated by it. Look out for it. My final principle, my most important one, is this. And it's fundamental to the way that you see life and the way that you see God. And the principle is this. God is good. You and I have to always remember that, that God is good. That fundamentally, he pursues the pleasure of his children. That's what Jesus says when his disciples ask him, hey, you, you're being evil how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more the heavenly father will give good gifts to his kids? God is fundamentally a good God who pursues his kids' pleasure. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says this, God has given to us all things to enjoy. Why is that so important? Because the enemy brings this lie. It's the very first lie in the Bible. It's all the way in Genesis chapter 3. The enemy comes to Eve and says this to Eve, really. He says, Eve, God is not good. He's holding out on you. He knows if you got to partake in this fruit, man, your life would be perfect and brilliant and happy. But God's holding out on you. God is not a good God. That was the lie. It's the same lie that's whispered to our teenagers today. Man, if you could only engage in sex, you'd be so happy. Life would be so brilliant, but God's holding that out from you. Same lie. 
And I wish, I wish I could tape record conversations I've had with moms and their 16, 17-year-old daughters in my office where they're sobbing because they partake of that tree. It's the same lie he'll whisper to you. If you could only go party, if you could only do these, oh, it'd be so fun. God's a cosmic killjoy. You have to know, fundamentally, God pursues your joy. And here's, I think, how the church propagates part of the problem. We have done this in church. We have, I call it segregated spirituality. We have made certain things holy and then other things profane. So the holy things are read your Bible and pray and come to church. And then the rest of life is just filler till you get back to reading your Bible and praying and coming to church. Like we've done that. This is good stuff. That's bad stuff holy and profane. I do not agree with that one bit. You know what's holy to me? Legos. Unless you're barefoot and you step on them because that causes you to sin and it's satanic. Why? Because it builds relationships with my sons. We build things together. Man, that's a holy thing. You know what's holy to me? Soccer. Because we get all the nephews and the cousins and the kids and uncles and we get together and we play this massive game at a field and for an hour and a half, I get to show them my mad skills. It's holy. It's holy to me, snowboarding. Yes, amen. Because I get to see God's beauty and just say, God, you are so good that you've allowed me to live in this wonderful little place called Southern Oregon with Mount Ashland and Mount Shasta and this beauty around me. I get to enjoy it with my wife and my kids. Thank you. That's holy. That's a holy moment. There's no segregated spirituality. I don't agree with that one bit. That God pursues my joy. I don't box God into, hey, from 11 o'clock until 12.15, maybe longer today, till 12.15, this is God. No way. God wants it all. He's a good dad that wants my pleasure, pursues my joy. I think the best way it was ever put was by Eric Liddell. Remember him, Chariots of Fire guy? Dun, 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 dun. Okay? So he's a really fast runner. He was headed to the Olympics. And these Roman 14 dudes, they came over to him and were like, bro, you can't do the Olympics. You need to go to China and be a missionary. Guess what his answer was? God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. I don't know how he felt pleasure in running. My saying is this, um, when I run, I feel Satan's pain. It's a little different, <laughs> so I don't do it. And he got it. No, it's not about, being a missionary in China is really good, so is running, because there's no difference. It's Jesus came, and he came that we might have life and that more abundantly, right? It's what John Piper calls Christian hedonism, that you go for what truly makes you most joyful, that that's what God really wants for us, that he wants us to be happy. You know what Jesus was never accused of? Being a bummer. Like, dude's a stiff, man. It's terrible hanging out with him. He's always saying no to everything. You know, you know what he was actually accused of? Being a wine bibber and a glutton. Why? Because he enjoyed himself. And the Romans 14 dudes, the Pharisees were like, you can't do that. He's like, why not? This is my father's green earth and I'm gonna enjoy it. It's a good place. He made it good and he gave it to me and I'm going to enjoy it. That's what we're supposed to be. 
the best witness a believer can ever be is to enjoy life. Not destructively like Solomon because you won't enjoy life. We talked about that. Enjoying it because you are full as a believer. You're not trying to derive pleasure from something that will never satisfy you. You're already satisfied. That's the best witness a believer can ever be. Have a zest, a joy for life. That's it. All right, so I'm gonna read one more text and then we're done. It's back to Solomon. So when we left him, he was suicidal and depressed and hated his life, right? Well, Solomon doesn't end in chapter two. He actually figures it out in Ecclesiastes. Listen to these verses. They're brilliant. It's Ecclesiastes 3.12. We read 3.11 last week where God has put eternity in our hearts. Something so big, it doesn't matter what we try to cram in it, it's not gonna be big enough. So now, verse 12, he says this. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes 5.18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in all his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. And the last one, my practical application for you to take home, is chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine, or grape juice, with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. I love that statement. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God's already approved of you. We don't work for approval, we work from it. That God looks down on us and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. God is pleased with you. You are accepted in the beloved. That's what the grace of Jesus Christ does for us. You're brought in, so now you're able to enjoy So go, eat your bread with joy. Go have a meal today with some friends. Tell great stories. Laugh until something comes out your nose that is not air. And I think God looks down and says, yes. Mom, dad, what's your best moment with your kids? When they're enjoying the things that you gave them when they're laughing and giggling and playing and enjoying the good things that you've given to them, right? That makes you so stoked. Yes, they're loving life. Our Heavenly Father's the same way. Yes, they're loving the abundance that I've given to them. Let your garment be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Doing the opposite, wearing black with no oil was, life is so miserable, it was mourning. Don't do that. Be white, be oiled. Enjoy, verse 9, life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Go.
enjoy life. Because as believers, we're the only ones that are able to handle it right. Pleasure doesn't own us. It doesn't dominate us. We're not trying to squeeze from our wife or our house or a party life because we've already been given to it, given it. We already have it, and now we can enjoy everything else. That's pleasure. Go. Eat a great, great meal. Play soccer. Play some Legos. Go. Enjoy life. That's what Jesus gives to you and me because of this abundance that he gives to us. And we do it guarded, yes. We do it, yes, understanding, I want to have a goal with this. And we do it knowing, God is so good. Christian hedonism, going for what truly makes me most joyful. And so, Father, I pray for us. I pray against the lies of the enemy that are so subtle. You are a cosmic killjoy trying to keep good things away from your kids. I pray for any in here that have believed that lie and moved in directions that are destructive. I pray that they would know they can move back to you. That if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. That we can boldly approach the throne room of grace and obtain help in our times of need. You're a good dad. And just like the prodigal son, you wrap us up with your love. Give us a ring and throw us a party. I pray that the lives we live would not be segregated where church is over here and the rest of life is over here. But it'd be that beautiful model that your son demonstrated so perfectly of loving life, ministry at every level, being accused of enjoying himself too much, Lord. May we live like Jesus, I pray. So go with us and fill us and empower us and love us so we can love other people, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.